is a, a passage of scripture that you likely have never heard before nor read. It doesn't come up in the Revised Common Lectionary. You have a hard time doing some background research on this, online at least. I've got a lot of great books that do the story of Ezra. Though as I read it throughout the week, you find that it really is an Advent story in more ways than you recognize. So I invite you to open up your hearts and your minds, your keen listening ears, to this portion of God's Word to all of us. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald through all his kingdom, and also in a written edict declared, Thus says the king, he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let all survivors in whatever place they may reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, besides free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. When the seventh month came and the Israelites were in the towns, the people gathered together in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, with his kin, set out to build the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation because they were in dread of the neighboring peoples, and they offered burnt offerings upon it to the Lord, morning and evening. And they kept the festival of booths as prescribed, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the ordinance as required for each day. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Now I have a couple opening questions for us today. How many of you are not from Baltimore? So of that group, how many of you go back home? wherever that is, for Christmas time. I ask this because it's an important question, I think, in our thinking about returning home, wherever that might be. That's part of what this story is about in a big way, and all the varied and many different dynamics that happen in those journeys. This is an account once told, and I think repeated millions and millions of times over through millennia of human experience, and then even in our own lives in ways that we don't expect or always recognize. That is to say that this story in the Bible is not just about history, but also about us and how we live our lives with others. 
it is a very good chapter for us in our Advent journeys. The book of Ezra may be hard to locate in the Bible, but it is an essential part of the canon that we have. For along with its partner book, Nehemiah, without it, the Israel of the Bible would not have existed. Ezra shares a deeply emotional and very theological tale detailing the return of the people of Judah from their exile. Ezra was a scribe and a priest. He lived from approximately 480 to 430 B.C. Remember, we're in B.C. times. He lived in Babylon as a part of the group of Jews living in exile there. His task was to faithfully record both what took place in history and to share what it meant in the light of his faithfulness to the prophets and to the God of his ancestors. The kingdom of Persia, under good King Cyrus, as he was known, had just conquered Babylon, who 70 years before had overtaken Jerusalem, had destroyed the temple, and had deported most of its residents about a thousand miles away from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's like from here to Kansas City. That's a pretty good, pretty bad trip. Now, in the time of exile, they had lived their life there and had settled down with numerous prophets here and there predicting some kind of return. Under good King Cyrus, and he was called good King Cyrus because he was generous and he let his people go. He allowed people to worship as they pleased as long as they paid him tribute. So it was good King Cyrus who allowed the Jewish people to return and to rebuild their temple. So this is a key moment in Jewish history. The return is filled with deeply mixed emotions. Ezra records this fascinating and redemptive account with a voice that is both compelling and exacting. He mixes passionate emotion and the precise detail of a CPA, detailing exactly the 42,360 men, women, and children of varied tribes and different social statuses who make up the group of returning refugees. The refugees themselves comprise a mixed collection of hopes and joys, surprises and disappointments. A quick census of resettled Jerusalem would reveal three primary groups of residents. There are some Jews who were left behind in Jerusalem 70 years ago who have no connection now with those who have returned. A whole new generation grew up over there, and these people don't know the returnees. There are also Jews who return who claim a full right to the land that was rightfully theirs. There are also non-Jews who remain in Jerusalem who now have to defend their claim on their properties. So some of those social dynamics you can well imagine happening, you know, in Israel even today. It is a tumultuous time, full of mixed emotions, relief, despair, hope, anticipation, and so much more. The center of much of this drama is around the temple, now in ruins, but soon to be restored upon its original foundation. The first temple, built under Solomon, was built under conscripted Israelite labor, which really means slavery, which led to deep divisions among the people. The second temple, now built, will be built with permission and supplies through a decree from King Cyrus, this foreign king. Cyrus instructs that those returning from exile will be aided by those people there with the means to help them. Once the temple is in a condition to worship, Jews will gather to celebrate and to bring their offerings to the Lord. They celebrate the festival of the booths, 
which is both the harvest celebration and remembrance that hundreds and hundreds of years before, during the time of the Exodus, the people were entirely dependent upon God. The event itself is received in different ways. During the celebration, many of the young people shout with joy, for they've never known the temple except in a state of destruction. To them, building a new temple signifies a bright future for Israel. Some of the elders, though, remembered what the temple used to look like. They grieve for what once they saw as the difference between this new temple and how they remembered the previous one. They grieve the irretrievable loss of time and all the memories with it. The book of Ezra is centered not so much on the testimony of rebuilding of the temple, one of the landmark events in Jewish history and the central focus, in fact, of the book of Nehemiah, but rather as a careful accounting of how the Jewish people respond to their relocation, how it is that they react in this new time in a way that they might be able to redeem themselves and not do the things they did before that led to their destruction and their deportation. Ezra himself is obsessed with purity and impurity, both in the conduct of worship and within human relationships, often with life-changing implications for whole swaths of the population. Now, in some ways, I think that this storyline is universal, both in looking back and looking forward. It's a helpful story in different ways. For the elders, looking back causes pain because of the regret over what once was and will never be again. For the young, looking back was a cause for celebration because they could begin to dream of what their future might become. It can be good to look back, remembering our past mistakes can help us not to make those same mistakes again. It can also be good to look forward, imagining a future that can motivate us to do what we need to do today to make a better tomorrow. It can also be very good to look right into the future, into the present in which we live right now. Finally, the book of Ezra shares two lessons, very pertinent, I think, to our day and time, both in Advent and in our lives in general. It was the author Thomas Wolfe who memorably coined the phrase, you can't go home again, and I have a pretty clear sense of what he meant, as did the Jews in Jerusalem, of course. Over the past month or so, I needed to return back to my hometown three times for family events, for two funerals and Thanksgiving. And each time, I gathered with a different set of cousins. Some of those cousins still live in my hometown. Some once did and have moved away. Some never lived there, but have very vivid memories of the times that they came back for family visits. Now, it is, of course, those who moved away who then returned with very rose-colored memories of times long past, never to be replicated or improved in any way, shape, or form, at least in their memories. What I noticed from those conversations is that when folks make a fuss over those times now past, those good old days which were immeasurably great, that the prospect of times now or in the future being equally good or even better seemed to be intentionally eliminated. In some ways, it might be like cutting off your nose to spite your face, looking back when life keeps going on ahead of you. For life, after all, is meant to move forward in light of the wisdom of the past and not to turn backward in the stupidities of the past. The second lesson is about those who need to travel. And this is where the story takes on a real Advent theme. It takes a theme on about those who need to travel, particularly 
who need to travel by no choice of their own. In Ezra's time, they traveled hopefully, expectantly, with the promise of a return and then this rebuilding of the temple. So, over the next couple weeks, as we approach Christmas, there will be people who are traveling expectantly as well. But another huge number of folks will be traveling out of desperation, seeking a safe place to live. Instead of returning home, wherever that might be, they'll be headed somewhere else, new and unknown to them. There will be new things and strange things and dangerous things along the way. The gifts that they are looking for are safety, security, and a fair chance at life. When I think about reading the story of Ezra in Advent, I think about this, that in two weeks' time, less than that now, really, we will read again of an unmarried couple who were whispered about in their hometown because of a mysterious pregnancy, seeking to fulfill the demands of the law. The place where they are legally required to travel is far away, but they've got to go there in order to file their paperwork. And in that town where they need to go, they know it will be jam-packed full of outsiders. Even though there are people there related to them by blood or by some other ties, they end up sharing some space that belongs to generous strangers. That night, the woman will undergo the most dangerous thing that would ever happen in her life. She gives birth. Strange men come to see her and talk about night visions in the sky. Later, even stranger men come from further away and tell her of the danger to her and her baby. Her betrothed is also alerted to this danger, and they flee. They go to Egypt, a place that had once enslaved their ancestors. But there, they find safety. This, of course, is the story of Jesus' family. But the story for us now is not just about Jesus, or Santa Claus for that matter, but is essentially about our recognizing the journeys that we have taken in life and the gifts that we have received along the way. The story is all about how we can begin to recognize how it is that we can be a help to others in their journey, that we might be a help to the stranger, the wayfarer, the neediest ones in our midst. For as we begin to do this, we begin to embody the story of God among us, which is all God really does ask of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.